Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Hey, I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the COO Alliance and the host of the Second in Command podcast, also the founder of the Invest in Your Leaders course. And on this episode, I wanted to do a Q&A, kind of an ask me anything. We went out on Facebook and LinkedIn and just asked a bunch of our fans and some of our members of the COO Alliance and some of just the random people in our network for some questions that they wanted to ask me. And I thought I would answer those live and give you a COO's perspective. So as most of you know, I was the chief operating officer for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I've also played the second in command a couple of times with a couple of other companies over my career. And then over the last, I guess, 14 or 15 years in coaching CEOs all over the world, um, typically companies of 50 to 500 employees, I really acted almost like a COO, kind of whispering into the brains of the CEO whisperer. So I'm going to go ahead and just um, answer a, a bunch of questions right now and try to also give credit with the people who on social media shared the questions with us. So the first one is from Amber Cooper, who is the COO at Two Brain Business. Amber is also in her second year with the COO Alliance as a member of the COO Alliance. So Amber, thank you for this first question. It's regarding metrics and benchmarks. How have you set the benchmark for key metrics when market data is not ready, readily available? So basically what I do, I, I think of the, um, the leadership team dashboard. I'll assume that that's where we're going with right now is the benchmark for metrics at the leadership team level. And then I'll drill down into each of the individual department levels. So what I like to do is take each department and I ask them for an all-inclusive list of all of the metrics that they believe that their business area should be tracking both um, predictive um, indicators and also um, lagging indicators and looking at those metrics for their success. So what metrics should marketing be tracking? Maybe they'll have 20 or 30 metrics that marketing needs to track to ensure that they're successful. Finance might have 12 or 15 metrics, IT, sales, operations, et cetera. So each business will come up with, or each business area will come up with their all-inclusive list of all the metrics. And then you kind of whittle those down so that at the leadership team level, you really only have two or three core metrics that roll up to the leadership team level. Um, for each business area. So once you've done that, then you want to establish how often to track each of those metrics and what the benchmark is or what the goal is for each of those actual metrics or KPIs that you're going to be tracking. So let's say as an example, you're going to set a, a metric or a KPI for employee net promoter score. Okay. Maybe that's a, a metric that you're going to be tracking and maybe every three to six months, you're going to run a survey and you want to report on your employee net promoter score, your customer net promoter score. As an example, for every COO Alliance event, we get a, a, a customer net promoter score. And my benchmark is I want 80% or higher. Um, at our last event, we got a positive 82. So that's good. So what you want to do is just kind of set a goal or a, a kind of a benchmark or a level that that is acceptable for you. If there is no industry data available, then you actually just want to make one up. So you kind of just do a silly wild ass guess. I also like using a little bit of the wisdom of the crowd and I'll go out and just ask maybe a few different members of the leadership team what they think might be a solid benchmark. And we usually use that as the first 
um, number that we'll track against. And then I'll set a band of acceptability, a goal, maybe I set 80 as the goal for net promoter score. And then if it gets too high, maybe it's over 80 or 85, maybe there's something wrong and I need to actually demand more from those people and I can bring that number down. Or if it's too low, what am I gonna do below that? So that's how we approach it is looking at First off, what would the industry give us or what could we get from um, maybe mastermind groups that we're in? Maybe we ask others in our community or we just try to ask some of the people on the team for a number and just use that as the initial benchmark that we might go with. The second one that we have is for um, net promoter score. And this is actually another question from Amber Cooper, COO at Two Brains Business. So for NPS, what actions can you trigger out of the results other than marketing your service? Does it really inform or change the business? And how do you avoid the trap of chasing the feedback? What do you do? So what I like doing again with the net promoter score is I only ask the one core question. On a scale of one to 10, how enthusiastically would you recommend this as a place to work? Or if you're asking your customers on a scale of one to 10, how enthusiastically would you recommend our service to a friend? I actually just take that data point and then you calculate the net promoter score. Your nines and tens are your promoters. You subtract the ones through six. Those are your detractors. You end up with a result of somewhere between negative 100% and positive 100%. The goal being to move from the positive 50 or greater. They're considered positive 50% or greater is considered world-class. I like being at positive 80 or better just because the reality is if world-class is positive 50, that means that, you know, 50% of the companies out there generally suck anyway. So I really like to be more in that positive 80 plus range. So the second question that I ask, and it is only the, the second question that we ask in every survey is what's one thing we could do to have you increase your rating the next time we ask the question. So I won't actually chase it with 12 or 15 follow-on questions. I just ask one question. And then six months later, when I do the survey the second time, I sometimes will ask the second question and I add a little twist to it. I say, what's one thing we can do that doesn't cost money? that would have you increase the rating the next time we ask the question. And usually those data points, and again, using the wisdom of the crowd helps you take some good insights and some good information that you can use going forward. And um, that's usually enough to go with. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, next question we've got is from Teresa Fett, who is the CEO of FinTruth. And she said, for a successful COO, what would three things be that the CEO should make sure to teach them during their training process? So great question. Um, it, it also really depends on what level the COO is that's coming into your organization and what size your organization is. So, you know, if you're a company of maybe 20 to 50 employees, that's going to be very different on what you're going to be teaching them or how you're going to be onboarding that COO. If you're a 500 to 2000 person company, because they might be a little bit more seasoned, um, a little bit more you know, skilled than maybe a more junior level second in command. Also, it really depends on what the title of the person is you're bringing in. Are they truly a COO or are they more of a VP operations or maybe a director of operations or maybe a general manager? So the core three things that I make sure that every CEO trains the onboarding of the COO with is really about the core culture, the history, and the vivid vision of the company. It's really the core. If you think about Simon Sinek, when he talked about his golden circles, you do that, the why, how, and the what. It's the why you exist as a company, right? It's the history of the company, the your big, hairy, audacious goal, your BHAG. It's your core values. It's your vivid vision and where you're going. That's the real core that you want every COO to be really inducted with and not worry as much about the actual business itself. But if they can truly, truly understand why you bleed the way you do, 
do, what matters to the organization and where you're going, that vivid vision, that four or five page written document describing your future. That's really the critical key parts of bringing that COO on board into a new organization in the training process. And then after you get them trained in that, you can then move into more of the, the, you know, the, how they're doing the job or what we're actually doing in terms of the organization. Next question I've got is from John Lauks, who's the VP of operations at Royal Engineered Composites. And John and I actually went to high school together. So it's kind of funny seeing John's name popped up. John and I went to high school together 30 plus years ago up in Sudbury, Canada. So John Lokes, um, VP of operations, thank you for this question. What are the top three things that the COO must prevent the CEO from doing and why must they stop them and how to stop them? I love this question. So the COO, one of the core jobs of the COO is to really be the um, kind of the person who says the emperor has no clothes, right? It's like the emperor's new suit. It's to tell the CEO what they're doing wrong. It's to tell the CEO maybe the, uh, the reverberations they're causing inside the organization or the negative ripple effects. Maybe it's to pull the CEO aside and tell them the stuff that no one else is telling them, but to do it privately. So really the, the how to stop them part is to always tell the CEO privately what's going on. Don't do it publicly. So it's almost that you know, private criticism, public praise. Um, anytime you criticize a CEO in front of others, they're going to tend to get their back up against the wall and they're really going to let you have it. Um, it may be in person or maybe later. So it's really best to do it privately. And the CEOs, the strong ones, really love to hear from the CEOs of what's going wrong. Um, and they like to hear it privately though, for sure. So let me see the top three things that I would say to prevent them from doing. The first one is to make sure the CEO understands their core role is to be the chief energizing officer, right? It's to really bring positive energy into the organization and to prevent them from doing anything that causes negative reverberations inside the organization, any negative ripples. So make sure that the CEO is there as the chief energizing officer, that they're raising the energy of the group, they're praising people, they're thanking people, they're reinforcing the core values, and that they're not coming down too negatively or too hard on the organization. Secondly, and this is more in an entrepreneurial organization than maybe a professional managed company. So this tends to happen more in the maybe 20 employees to 250 employee range. Most of those CEOs tend to be very entrepreneurial and they tend to wing it and shoot from the hip. They tend to make it up on the go. They tend to have, you know, the idea of the day or the idea of the hour that they like to roll out. So the COO's core job there is to make sure that the CEO has a, a place to keep all of their ideas but you don't necessarily want to start them right away. So the COO's job is to go to the CEO and say, hey, I love that idea. Let me ask you a few questions to fully understand it. And then we'll decide whether we're going to green light the idea, meaning you're going to start it right away, or whether you'll yellow light the idea, meaning it's a good idea, but not right now, maybe next quarter or two quarters from now, or red light after you've asked a bunch of questions, the CEO feels heard. It doesn't necessarily get started and you can actually kill it before it gets started. So that's a core role of the COO. And then the second or the third part would be to prevent the CEO from getting too in the weeds, right? The CEO's job is to grow people, to be the caretaker of the vision, to be the caretaker of culture, to make sure they're always steering the organization in that right direction, and to make sure that they're kind of climbing up the mountain to see where we're going, but to not get too in the weeds. So to really prevent the CEO's job is to prevent the CEO from getting too into the details and to make sure that we keep them at that strategic level. So again, John, thanks for that question. Hopefully that's helpful on the answer side. 
Okay, next question we have is from Gareth Herman, who's the co-founder and CEO of Magic, which is a marketing agency. He said, what are the top three things that a COO needs to stop doing? Um, another great question. I love the top threes around this stuff. It keeps me on my toes. So let's see, what are the three things the COOs need to stop doing? Well, the first one is they need to stop getting involved in the areas the CEO is running. So COOs need to be the ones figuring out how to grow the organization, how to make the vision come true. They need to be the ones who are figuring out the kind of who, what, when, where, why, and how of the plan that the vision or the, the vision that the CEO has. So the CEO needs to stay away from vision and really needs to stay in that kind of operational side. Next thing the COO needs to stop doing is to stop doing the work, right? The COO's job again is to grow people. And the more that they invest time and the resources in growing their managers, growing the skills of the managers, you know, growing their manager skills around delegation and time management, coaching, problem solving, um, growing their skill set around email management and um, delegation and, and really skilling up their management team versus doing the actual work. So the COO's job is to get results through people. I think that's a core thing the CEO needs to stop doing there. And then the last one that the CEO needs to stop doing is to um, stop stop being so focused on the next project, the next project, and maybe start praising a lot more. You know, more CEOs and COOs need to praise their direct reports much more than they do. I think about if you were raising children, that the more praise you give your kids, you're raising the confidence. And COOs tend to be so driven on the next project, the next goal, the next project, the next goal, that they often forget and they, they stop doing the, the praise. So I think what we need to do is stop driving so hard and start remembering that our role again is to grow people and growing them means growing their skills and also growing their confidence as well. So the next question we have is from Tina Hamilton, who's the CEO and founder at Our Virtual HR. And Tina and I have been connected on uh, social media for about the last 10 years. So Tina, thanks for the question. When you have a potential client who needs the services you offer, but the client does not meet your cultural requirements, we're an HR outsourcing company and they won't deal with companies that do not treat their employees well, how do you handle rejection with grace? I always just go back to the core values, Tina. I just go back and say, I'm sorry, you're not a fit for our company's core values. And I don't think that we are the right client for you to work with. And um, I think that actually sends a huge message, not just to them, but really more to your entire organization when you're really a core values and culture-based organization. It sends a really strong message to all of your employees that you're just not willing to um, deal with people like that. So amazingly or interestingly, um, about 18 years ago, when I was the COO for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we had a franchisee who was being really rude to some of our employees. And I just said, you know, if you ever do this again, um, yeah, in fact, I walked into the call center one day, I think it was on a Saturday, and one of our employees was in tears and they told me what had happened. They'd been really, really rudely treated by one of our franchisees. And I said, you know, if you ever do this again, I'm going to find a way to pull your franchise agreement. And um, I don't know when it was, probably six or eight weeks later, I walked in and heard that he had really been extremely rude and, and um, had, again, had made one of the people in our call center cry. And um, I worked real hard and about three weeks later found enough just cause in his agreement that we were able to terminate the franchise. And that sent a huge signal across the entire organization that we just do not put up with people who break our core values. So I think it's a really simple situation and you don't have to feel bad about it if a client or potential client 
isn't a good cultural fit, just tell them that and don't worry about them because the, that old saying of those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. So I would just say it and don't worry about trying to do it with grace. Just say you're not a great cultural fit for us and um, politely decline. So next question I have is from Erin Nelson. Erin is a, um, a long-term member of the COO Alliance. She's also the VP of Operations and Organizational Effectiveness at Kindred Bravely. And Erin has a question. Um, she said, you and your sister are both entrepreneurs. How did your parents foster this mindset? <laughs> That's a great question. So we were really groomed to be entrepreneurs. In fact, my sister, my brother, and myself have all been running our own companies for between 15 and 25 years. But it's really all we've ever known is either being entrepreneurs or building entrepreneurial companies. Um, both sets of grandparents were entrepreneurs. So my mom's parents were entrepreneurs. They ran a hunting and fishing resort up in Northern Canada. And then my dad's father was the CEO of an organization called Searle Pharmaceuticals. And then my father was an entrepreneur, a couple of aunts and uncles that are entrepreneurs. And we were really groomed that way as kids in high school to be entrepreneurial. So just lots of, of business um, ventures that we got involved in. In fact, I did a, te a TEDx talk that's been on the main TED website now for around 10 years. It's about raising entrepreneurial kids and just talks about how we were groomed. So maybe take a good listen to that. Maybe I'll have Jason link to that TEDx in the show notes as well. But we were really groomed to be entrepreneurial. I don't think that everyone should be an entrepreneur, but I think that people should be more entrepreneurial in their day-to-day -day lives and in their work as well. And then the last question we have is, um, actually, there's no name on this one, but it was, the question was, I lead a team of 10 people. I've diagnosed myself with being a bad communicator. I don't talk enough. Where should I start? Well, start talking more. Um, so I think you want to sit down and just say, you know, where is it that you're not talking enough? Is it that you're not talking enough by stating what your opinions are or telling people what you want them to do? Or are you afraid of conflict? But I always believe that the leader should speak last, uh, that in any meeting, the leader should be the last person to voice their opinion or to voice their ideas, because the leader's job is to grow their team, to grow their employees, and it's to grow their skills and their confidence. And if the leader's always speaking first, it's really hard for the employees to actually speak up and to feel heard and to, to gain confidence that their ideas are valued. So I always believe that um, you don't wanna be speaking necessarily more you just want to be speaking at the end to make because often your ideas have already been shared by somebody in the group one area that you really can start practicing to communicate more is praising your team as well praising your employees i think all leaders need to work harder um, at praising people twice as often as we give them new things to work on or or areas to fix but really be praising twice as often as you're critiquing or giving new projects to your team is one area to start as well and then also on the communication side, I think all leaders really need to be better at asking really strong questions. Um, and I'll give you an example of a really strong leadership question. One of my mentors years ago, when I was the COO for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I was being groomed by someone who's, who was being groomed as a COO at, at Starbucks. And so my mentor was talking to me one day and he gave me an example of a sign in Seattle where the letter B on the sign wasn't working. And Howard Bihar, who at that time was the CEO at Starbucks, there's been Howard Schultz, Howard Bihar, and Orrin Smith, and I think there's a fourth CEO today. But Howard Bihar was CEO, and he called um, Greg, my mentor, and was upset. And he said, you know, why is the letter B on the sign at 50th and Wallingford in Seattle not working? And Greg said, well, that's not a good question. It's not a leadership question. And Howard said, fine, what's the leadership question that I should be asking? 
And Greg said, well, what system do we have in place to ensure that every letter on every sign at all of our locations is always working? He said, those are the kinds of questions we should be asking. And I think as leaders, those are the kinds of things you should be focusing on in terms of communication as well. So lots of praise, lots of really good questions and speaking last would be the core of what I would be focusing on as a leader. So hopefully that is a great episode for all of you. Um, kind of quick and dirty. I think there were eight solid questions and we'll do this again pretty regularly. I think this is the second or third time that we've done it now. Hopefully you get lots of value in there. I encourage all of you as well to take a look at the Invest in Your Leaders course. If you go to the COO Alliance website, click on the course link, the Invest in Your Leaders course will be something that you all really appreciate all the good content that's in there as well. And hopefully you guys all have a great week. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com. 